the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes and whatnot. We're chatting exclusively today about Stephen King's Salem's Lot. Welcome to a Words and Whiskey short pour. This is an occasional podcast where we have a fun time discussing fictional worlds and the people that create them, all while boozing just a little bit. My name is Cross. My name is PJ. And we're doing something new. We're going to be putting these out on the main feed as sort of like full episodes in addition to their own side feed, just to have them on a nice sort of like cataloging basis. But just because we kind of want to bring home that like, you know, more book clubby, book clubby feel to things. I kind of want to read, you know, do like big episodes and single books with a little bit more telegraphing for folks that they can read along with us and kind of enjoy that as a part of the process. So this is our episode on Salem's Lot. Salem's Lot. Salem's. Yeah. Uh, it Salem's took me lot. until today to realize that Salem was an abbreviation of Jerusalem. Mm. Even <laughs> even given the context within the book, didn't pick up on mm-hmm. it for some reason. It's it's only said Salem's lot a handful of times as it's like abbreviated physically in the novel. So that does make sense. But mm. again, today, you know, just to reference it, I guess I kind of went out of order here. But we're going to be talking about Stephen King's second novel, Salem's Lot. But it is yeah. my second Stephen King reading experience because, yeah. because of Lucy. Was it Lucy? I think that's what it was called. Yeah. Yeah. A little short story that I yeah. did not like that much. <laughs> Totally fair. Totally fair. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, I appreciate it for what it back is. And re-read it. I appreciate it for what it is, which is yeah, like a, I mean, it's just a, a clinic a story on, about a dog on character writing. Right. Yeah. Which is what he's good at. So, or one of the many things that he's good at, but exceptionally here. So before we go too much further, we don't want to beat around the bush too much. What are we drinking? What you having? What's tonight? Tonight, it's something that I've had on the show before, but it's been Mm -hmm. a minute. It is a Royal Hawaiian Mai Tai. I don't have the name of the person that specced it uh, off the top of my head. But so I apologize if you're listening and this is your drink. It's damn good. I did switch the Jamaican and Caribbean rum. But anyway, so one and a half ounces of Jamaican rum, 0.75 ounces of Caribbean rum, one ounce of acid-adjusted pineapple juice, which is pineapple juice with citric and malic acid added to make it the same acidity levels as lime juice. So it, it acts like lime juice as, as far as uh, acidity level goes. Five-eighths of an ounce of orjo, a quarter ounce of orange liqueur, and five drops of saline solution, all shaken. Damn good. Fucking delicious. I, I love Mai Tais in general. And adding that punch of pineapple without it overbearingly adding sweetness just works perfectly. So, yeah, I I recall the it's Garrett Richard. Is okay. the name. Thank you. Which came to me in a flash as I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know this because it's from an Educated Barfly episode that I yep. watched like two days ago or something okay. like that. Gotcha. Thinking about tiki drinks. But yeah. I think uh, he's out in New York at Death yes. & Co? he is out of, he, it might be Death & Co? I, that feels right. Yeah. Yeah. Either cool. New York or Colorado. 
because those are the two Delco yeah. locations. But could be. Yeah. Um I am having a very simple beverage. I am just having a rum old fashioned with a little bit of grated nutmeg on top. So I just decided to play it easy today. You know what I'm realizing? I didn't put any bitters on it. Mm. <laughs> let, me, let me fix that quick. <laughs> like, why does it just look like rum with an ice cube in it? Actually, the cube's gone because it was poured a while ago. But I digress. Cool. So yeah, very, very simple, very straightforward. We also aren't doing a devil's cut on this episode because it... it Folks, we're recording two episodes this week, and both episodes are late at night, so mm-hmm. <laughs> we're squeezing for time. But cheers, nonetheless. Cheers. What are you drinking? Cruzan five-year barrel-aged. Nice. Single barrel. Yeah. I've got New Riff single-barrel bourbon. Nice. It's very nice. good. Yeah. A lot of, like, caramel brown sugar notes out of it. Really that's like pretty this. much what I'm getting out of mine as well. But, you know, out of a bourbon, that's more impressive. <laughs> <laughs> True. Good point. More uh, expected out cool. of Rome. Yeah. I, PJ, I, I have to be upfront before we, we talk too much about this book. Um, I've wanted to talk to you, to talk to anyone about like real Stephen King books for outside of my dad for most of my life. I got very excited a while ago when I was invited on to a podcast to chat about later, a book that I had not read, but I ended up really liking. And I kind of can't shut up when I start actually talking about King. So I need for you to just like cut me off no. when I get there. Or no, if I, I get w- there. I, w- I want you to ramble. This is going to be fun. Oh, cool. Okay. <laughs> this, this leads into the whole fucking point. Of why we started this mm-hmm. podcast, like the, your yeah. end game, your master plan, your devious, devious master plan was to get me to ring or get me to read the Dark Tower. Eventually, yeah. eventually, yeah. And it, it's coming. Like we have to do that before eventually. the podcast ends. Like that's right. My rule is, is like it's not like the podcast will necessarily end when we do the Dark Tower, mm-hmm. but it will. It has to be done before we can call it quits. That's right. that's my way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is a, a good stepping stone into Stephen King. Yeah, I, I do want to talk a lot bit more about that before we get in too far. I would love for you to read our plot summary here, our book summary, just for folks in case you're curious. <clears throat> you made it this far and you, you know, we haven't spoiled anything obviously yet, but uh, yeah. So as a disclaimer, I don't actually know for sure that it's on the front cover, like the inside flaps of the book, but on stephenking.com, it says from the flap. And that's what I copied and pasted into our document here. So that's, that's what I'm reading. Um, If it's It's probably from the original flap, uh, you know, could be back in the seventies. All right. Are you ready for a, a stylistic reading of the inside flap of the original Salem's Lock? Publication by me, who's not I good at reading so out loud. All right. Salem's Lot is a small New England town with a white clapboard houses, tree-lined streets, and solid church steeples. That summer in Salem's Lot was a summer of homecoming and return. Spring burned out and the land lying dry, crackling underfoot. Late that summer, Ben Mears returned to Salem's lot, hoping to cast out his own devils and found instead a new unspeakable horror. A stranger had come to the lot, a stranger with secrets as old as evil, 
a secret that would wreak imperable harm on those he touched and in turn on those they loved. All would be changed forever. Susan, whose love for Ben could not protect her. Father Callahan, the bad priest who put his eroded faith to one last test. And Mark, a young boy who sees his fantasy world become reality and ironically proves to be best equipped to handle the relentless nightmare of Salem's lot. This is a rare novel, almost hypnotic in its unyielding suspense, with builds to a climax of classic terror. You will not forget the town of Salem's Lot, nor any of the people who used to live there. I did okay. I did. I think you did well. I would have earned a couple little chuckles from the from the students in class as I read out loud. Absolutely. But, you know, not too many. Irreparable, mostly. Yeah. That was the only that was the only slip well, up. There, there, you know. there were some weird pacing things because I hadn't I hadn't yeah. read ahead. Whatever. That's totally fair. So I want to get into this. There's so much to talk about. I've got kind of like two different starting points. I think the first that I want to ask you about. Let's let's start it. Let's start at the top. What did you think about the book, PJ? How was your first experience with King, his second novel ever written? Um, and like what what you thought about it? So as as an aside to this, I read this entirely uh, in audiobook form. So mm-hmm. if that takes away from things, I apologize. I don't think I, so. I, I don't think I think really the does. only thing it takes away from to some degree is the newspapers. And I the way tell. that they like physically yeah. appear on page is like a little bit different. I think that it's clearer and easier to tell what they are. Yeah, know, that makes sense. Page. Um, narrator was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, totally agree. I listened to about five sixths of it. Okay. So. Yeah, you you jumped out to speed read because you can read faster than audiobooks can, unlike me. It's true. Uh, <laughs> I I fell in love with it, man. I couldn't stop listening to it. I really, really got wrapped up in the story. I, I had to pull myself away in order to like go to sleep or work or. <laughs> or do anything productive i just i it didn't take me very long to read it took me a couple days i think uh to get through the whole thing and it's i don't know how many hours like a 20 hour book or something 22 yeah something like that yeah on one x i just barreled through it yeah i now i get it i get what you mean I am excited to jump into more Stephen King. <laughs> I had been um, like kind of, I would say like poking and prodding um, you to read this so that we like we could talk about it. Like originally on our plan, we had hoped that we could maybe record this before your wedding originally so that it could be like, oh, we'll release this when it's spooky season mm-hmm. and like have like a spooky episode out. That'll be fun. And that didn't work out because we had so much to do and like neither of us had really touched it. I didn't even bring it along in the trip, which was my mistake. And there, there was just like a lot of things that prevented us from doing it. And so I kept poking you and being like, hey, read it, read it, read it. And then I poked you and you're like, yeah, I'm going to start it this week. And you did. And you finished it before I'd even opened it. And I went, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I've read it before when I was young, but, mm-hmm. you know, almost. And I read this for the first time when I was 13 14 so like it has been a bit for sure Mm -hmm. i mean i remembered pretty much all the details um 
or all the like high level, but you know, not a, not a whole lot of the details strikes a little bit harder when you understand some of the, the sort of terms and uh, more adult yeah. adult features. I, I can, I can understand story. that. That'd be, this is yeah. a heavy book for a teenager or for like a preteen. I just read Dracula on okay. my stepdad's recommendation. He had handed me Bram Stoker and said that I should read this. And I was like, absolutely. And so I pounded through it and I loved it. And he was like, okay, so next you need to read this. And then I was like, oh, so it's, it's similar, but like different in like a pretty substantial way that was really enjoyable for me to like compare. So yeah, yeah. I, with that, I don't think that the audiobook. this was the other starting point that I was thinking about. The audiobook doesn't include the author's note. I don't think does it. it? Does. Oh, it does. Okay. Yep. So you listen to the author's note. In, like in whole... Stephen King's voice. Mm-hmm. He, he records it himself. Did it? Did I, I, so. I might have just skipped it entirely. I do love... I, I know that some people, and this was even brought up recently. Yeah, in the opening credits. You're right. It's right there. It's 14 minutes. Some people have talked about it inside of our Discord of like not liking Stephen King's talking voice or like his reading of things. And I, man, I fucking love... The way that like King himself as a speaker pulls you in with the way that he writes too. like it's I don't know. Man is magic captured mm. in in a body somehow. Um, <laughs> it's it's just astonishing. So I find it interesting just to talk about this from like a high level perspective. So glad you enjoyed it. Glad to have this first experience. Glad that this also got to be that first book. Because I do think that it is a markedly good book and is not one like not that he has ever not been trying but he still hadn't had like the fame and the success at the point of this book being released this was so truly he intended for this to be his first book that he released carrie was fished from the garbage by his wife tabitha and he and she went this is incredible. You need to send this out. And so he fixed it up and then sent it out and then got and sold that. And that was his first book published, then made into a major motion picture, of course, which is the classic Carrie movie that made him famous at the same time as the movie was coming out. This or was in production. This book was coming out, which was supposed to be his first novel, kind of, which I always find that story fascinating as to how different of a landscape it would be if Stephen King would have been a vampire guy as opposed to a psychic kid guy and like what that would have meant for him and his career. I'm curious what Stephen King's career would look like if he started now. Mm. Same, same, same. A little bit like books, Blake Crouch. Same trajectory. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm kind of not kidding. but <laughs> I, Yeah, I believe you. I feel like it's probably insanely difficult for your first publication to have a movie in production before your second one comes out yeah i mean it was it was flying off the shelves i mean yeah carrie carrie is a great story in and of itself i didn't want to choose that as the first one to like start at the beginning and then read in part because i think that carrie is a good novel that is a little it is short, which is odd for a Stephen King book <laughs> and like very uncommon. There are not very many short Stephen King books in good part because it doesn't flex his muscles in the way that I find Stephen King to be an incredible writer, which is in his ability to paint a real world that you inhabit most of the time in the earlier works in the form of small towns, which are. Enchanting disarming and then ultimately that allure is 
problematic in serious ways in a very Lovecraftian-esque sort mm-hmm. of regard. I think the other thing is how like relatable and real the town blue collar feels. Yeah. And, and I I assume that's a fairly universal feeling, but you and I didn't grow up in like you you and I don't have the experience of growing up in a large city r- relatively mm-hmm. where that's all you know. So like th- this this at home this felt like it could have been a town just outside of our hometown. Feels like rice, you know, yeah. or like, you know, it, it feels like one of those towns that is just outside it, it, and is described as such, right? It's 10 mm-hmm. miles away from Portland, Maine, which is about the size of our hometown at the time, looking at population. So like similar demographics com- yeah. comparably. So yeah. Portland was that small back then? As I, like the St. Cloud metro area? Okay. Fair. Portland, Maine is not big. Makes right sense. now it's 68,000 people. Okay. So, so yeah, same yeah, as St. Cloud. It's like probably 30. Yeah. So anyway, point being like yeah. comparably... They're probably on pretty similar trajectories as far as metros go. So it does feel very relatable. And one of the things that Stephen King is notable for, as I, I'm sure you you obviously picked up on, is his ability to write in so many different perspectives makes it all feel very real. These are all real people one way or another, you know, and they may be despicable people. Most of them in this story are actually <laughs> yeah, there aren't which good is people around. Which is truly a feature and not a bug. And I really want to talk about that in sort of the grander scope of this story. But what's what's interesting is that as opposed to sort of Dracula being about the this big bag thing that invades and changes everyone, all that all that Barlow does is put its face out there. It gives it gives the evil of the city a name and that irreparable hunger is just apparent now. You know, we have all of these different characters of whom were nasty and evil in the background. And and Father Callahan's character is totally about exposing that, talking about it and saying, like, when you like really face down the evil of these small towns, that's what drives him to the bottle. And like, it's so wonderfully inner inner like intertwined into the fact that like the evil was there the door was locked on that evil and barlow was just the key so good <laughs> yeah man yeah so what would you think about that portion of it what do you think about sort of the the dracula side of things and the obvious inspiration so i think what I, i'm sure it's not unique i'm sure it's not even new even at this point but what what I really sort of found admirable and really loved about the story is that it is this modern, modernish retelling of Dracula while still referencing Dracula and like allowing Dracula to be, yeah, yeah meta, totally, totally meta, meta text. And the monster movies that Dracula spawned still exist within this world and... I don't know. I, I'm sure. I'm sure there's a specific. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a specific term for this sort of retelling. But either, no matter what, it felt clean and it it smart and and well done. Yeah, I I feel like the referencing of Dracula is such a clever. It's it's cleverly done throughout, right? Like he 
kind of brazenly ensures that you know that he knows what he's doing. Like, he knows exactly what he's doing. And he's like, yeah. And and Ben sees Mark as little Van Helsing and like mm. or, or maybe Matt Burke does. But point point being is like these are all characters that are assigned. And the reality is, is that we would likely fall into those tropes and sort of have have similar places because the initial thing is so real to begin with and so the initial concept is just like there in everything mm-hmm. and i love that idea and that concept and how he explores it yeah i'd like to go back to your idea or your thought on like the evil existing but get being unlocked being unlocked yeah. susan i feel like is a good example of how that makes sense you know, like she she's the least malicious of the turned mm-hmm. and and doesn't when she's alive and when she's like a real person, quote unquote, she doesn't have those uh, telltale flaws, you know, she doesn't yeah, have that whole evil thing in is- her seeking love and even in her turn state that's the way that she's pitching it right like her soul is dead as barlow and everyone else kind of brings up is like undeath you lose all of your memories you lose all your all your like things but obviously there's some like core attachment there to their bases because everyone's still especially when we inhabit their perspective when they're undead you still get those rumblings of who they were before Great example being Royce and Sandy McDougal, right? With Sandy being like the kids no longer talking and this is great and fine. And like, this is, you know, I don't know, just like that whole perspective is horrifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it's no different with, with Susan kind of being that way. Obviously this book is a horror novel. It's 50 years old at this point. I'm curious, was there ever a moment in which maybe you weren't scared, but you felt your like blood pumping a little bit, like it got your chest going Man, there were a bunch. Yeah, cool. The one that springs to mind the most was mm-hmm. when Susan's walking towards the Marston house and Mark is I I don't know if I missed something mm-hmm. or if it was meant to be a little bit confusing, but I had this suspicion that Mark was already turned. He's playing with King is playing with you there. It's it is and very much I'm in like, the mind of like how fucking intelligent are these like, vampires? Like, can they pretend to not be vampires? Like, is that something that's happening right now? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. That that fucked me yeah. up a little bit. Yeah, that that's a good one. The one that got me, I think, in particular, because I did finish this reread right before this is when Jimmy dies. When Jimmy falls down the stairs and you're in Mark's perspective and all you hear is the scream and I went, God, I know what happens and I know how it gets described as they cut off the stairs and like all the stuff. You just hear the screams and you're questioning at first whether or not that is like exposure to sunlight it's all the vampires screaming in the basement or if it's that and then you move into his perspective and he's screaming and you come to realize that no, 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 something has gone horribly wrong. Yeah, yeah. Woof. Woof. But a good moment, nonetheless. That's cool. That's cool. That's part of the reason that King is so fun to me is he he gets you going. He just has he has some like 
secret keys to everyone's chest and he just knows how to open them one way or another. I mean, fear, fear being one component, of course, and sort of the horror therein that he can unlock in the way that he composes sentences and thoughts and paragraphs. But a lot of other things, too. I mean, obviously, King earns the name the master of horror, as he's been dubbed over the years. But only about half of his books are horror novels, but they all one way or another get your chest pumping over over one thing or another i keep saying that but you know one way or another you're gonna leave you're gonna leave a king book with with chest pumping yeah it definitely did <laughs> yeah there, yeah there's a lot of it there i mean and there's there's a lot of it even in non-horror section like mm-hmm. the description of the baby getting thrashed was my god yeah horrifying it's sickening Mm -hmm. yeah but really well done and and it just makes you it it breathes this evil into this town right that existed beforehand which is casual it is so casual and that's why callahan drinks man that's why he's got that problem he's just like there's this callous, casual evil, and I, as the priest, am just supposed to forgive these people when they come in and they say their prayers. And it's like this this mundanity of evil is so much. I, I think it's even said in like a later chapter, maybe like chapter 13, which I think is Callahan's first like proper full section that he gets devoted to him. He's like, there's this little e evil that the 20th century Catholic Church was not prepared to deal with. In, in a sort of mundane sense, as opposed to the physical manifestation of the devil of all the centuries prior. And that's just so good way to go. Like just tears you apart from a philosophical and moral perspective too, while he's at it. Mm-hmm. He can get into it without getting into it. He just, he's so insightful without, I don't know. Fucking love King man. Yeah. I do too now. <laughs> And now that's good. I'm glad. Now I'm mad that there's an entire trilogy (laughs) between me and Stephen King. Oh, there's more than one trilogy, buddy. That's nine books. We have to read. Okay. There's one series (laughs) (laughs) Um, and a short story collection. Oh, Um, fuck. (laughs) But yeah, no, I, I, truth be told, I did mention this, I think in our um, patron discord, uh, but I personally, outside of the Dark Tower, am kind of just going to like let you take the wheel. If you want to read a King book, read a King book. Um, what, I, what I'd say is let me know and then we can talk about it. Um, but I'm not going to guide that too much more. Outside of Insomnia is the only book that you cannot read. That is a... There are few external reads to the Dark Tower that are critical, in my opinion, to its building as a story. And Insomnia is basically like book 6.5. So we're going to read it when it crops up. Gotcha. So, yeah. Like it's not middle, officially in dark the middle tower. of book six. We'll read Insomnia and then no, finish it's, book six. It is. It's after book six. Okay. Yeah. But before seven. So we'll basically take a break for Insomnia, um, which we'll probably just read. I, I'm already I've already done like a little micro breakdown of exactly where I, I actually. So with like the the first law, we're we're trying out like a new thing of speed. I have already chunked out the Dark Tower entirely. And so <laughs> that's all done, thankfully, at this point. And the. Insomnia, we're just going to read in three parts uh, as opposed to but it's a 700 page book. We're going to read it in three parts. OK, so cool. That'll be that'll be a fun stretch of weeks. Um, 
but it's that was like my fifth Stephen King book. And that one sits with me um, prior. I read it prior to the Dark Tower. Well, prior. Um, yeah, there's I can't talk about it anyway. Um, that's it. So anyway, point being world's your oyster. Uh, we will talk about whatever ones you want to talk about. Or if you give me a heads up, I can read them ahead of time. There are a handful that I have not read, which is interesting. I've kept them as like little gifts for myself down the line whenever i want like a dose of joy or like just to like experience this feeling because it is so hard to capture and so few people are so good at it so for king i keep a little spreadsheet of all the books that i own i've got specific rules to my like king collection that we talked about when we were in tennessee where it's like my rule going to a used bookstore is i can only get one king book because i'm trying to collect them all i totally so I bought one that you were going to buy and decided against for that reason. My intention mm-hmm. was to sneak it into your luggage. But oh. then I saw your conviction in that rule. And I'm like, all right, I'll I'll keep it. <laughs> it's it's a pretty I'm I'm pretty hardcore on that rule. I've read Needful Things. It's a great book. It's one that is publicly available at a lot of stores, so it's not super rare, so I didn't feel crazy about it. That copy of Songs of Susanna, though was in such good condition and I need to replace mine and I'm going to give you my other one that like I didn't, you know, I just, I needed that like a repaired version. Not that my book is damaged, but it had like a nice cover, which I don't have. And then it also hasn't been read as much (laughs) as my book has, of which I have, I, I read it. I read it again, that book last year on a lark one day just like sitting on the ground. I saw someone tweet about how it was their least favorite Dark Tower book. And I'm like, that's bullshit. And I popped it open and I read the whole thing in a single sitting. And I went, it's still really good. <laughs> this is a really good book. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. So. Damn. Well, I'm glad um, you found that. That was a fun bookstore. Yeah. I don't think yeah, it was really a very cool bookstore. No, no, no. Yeah. When we were, we were in Tennessee in Nashville a couple of weeks ago with Lindsay, who has been a guest on the show a couple of times and also is a host of Books and Baddies coming to you soon. I think I feel confident in saying it will be in your ears on the two-year anniversary of our romance podcast episode. So two years mm-hmm. to the day, and you'll be able to hear Books and Baddies. I'm very excited. Very excited to launch. Been working on it nonstop. PJ put in a lot of work today on it as well, which is great. So... Yeah, approaching mm-hmm. approaching the end there. Anyway, point being, I have kept a lot of these as like doses of joy. So I, I'll send you the list of ones that I haven't read, and maybe we'll read one as like a co treat. That'd be. But I also would say I probably you probably can't force me to read any of these outside of maybe one to like talk about on an episode. So fair enough. Like for instance, I have not read Misery, which is notably one of most people's favorite King books. Wonderful movie adaptation that I've seen, of course, that is just an all-timer. But that's one of those that I'm like, I know it's an all-time King book. I've held on to it for a very long time because it is. So, savor. To savor, yes. Okay, cool. All right, let's get back to the story. That was a little bit of a a side tangent here. But we we were talking about all of those sort of small evils that he captures so well. And all of this is to say that I think that this book is an indictment of those things very clearly. He brings them up so as to expose them as evil, not to endorse them at all, ever. I think that it can be really easy to see someone like write 
something and be like, oh, because they're putting it into their story, they're endorsing this. And that's not at all the case. I don't understand how somebody could read that way. Uh, just the, the mere thought of like bringing something up like that can be taken. Uh, yeah. I feel like that's this this book. I feel like you're it's allowed not to self-censor. Well, no, I mean, this book, I feel like yeah. it's it's not difficult to see that like. It's a condemnation of this type of. Acting, but there are other books that we've covered that I feel like people read too much into the existence of evil characters. Yeah, I I mean, I think really the the core of this to some degree is a, you know, genre, right? Like genre is what genre does and so like, you know, you can embrace that for for what it is. But also, you have to allow authors space to like move and create something because otherwise you don't get shit like this. And you know, this is a 50-year-old book that reads like it was published a year ago somehow. I, I mean, actually, I can't imagine it being published a year ago because of the language. And by language, I strictly mean that this is maybe too verbose for some, not all, but some publishers. Oh, God. Yeah. It's just... Uh. Yeah, the surprising... Like, he, he has the disclaimer, I guess, in the author's note of things that didn't age well yeah there are definitely things that did there, not age there well. are a couple but there are mm-hmm. remarkably few for a 50 year old book yeah and, and i think that the other part of saying that things didn't age well to some degree is to say that this is also a product of the of its time yeah, i think that right? that's like, that's the point that he's making in that author's note yeah and why he still loves it the way that he did mm-hmm. and I think he's saying if he were writing it today, he'd make some different choices, but that's not a condom or that's not a, I don't know. He's not, he's not trying to condemn what he wrote. He's not trying to say anything necessarily with that. Now I have a question for you. And this is maybe a bit of a meta textual read or an extra textual read. And I'm curious on your thoughts on it. This is something that I, I picked up explicitly on this reread and was thinking about the whole time. There is not another, there is not a single other ethnic character in this book outside of white people correct am i crazy there's there's some Um, there's some speech about like watching asian movies and there's some there's absolute i don't think there's a single black person not that some of that can't be left to the imagination but yeah i i didn't i I don't recall any descriptions of I don't recall. But yeah, I, I also don't recall any descriptions of white characters either. I just kind of. There were some outright with with like Susan, Ben, and I think Mark in okay. the very beginning being like he tanned, you know. Fair. But I think that those are really Father Callahan, I think actually has a little bit of description to him too, but a handful. And I do think that they're predominantly white. Okay, here's my pitch. There's, there's the, the reason that I asked this. There's the Hispanic uh priest in the oh, yes. prologue yeah yep prologue and epilogue yep. that he mentioned in the epilogue he's not actually in there munez munez the reason that i mentioned this is because i think that in a kind of maybe extra textual way this is also a good stand-in for the con a conversation around sundown towns as it relates especially in the north are you aware of i am sundown towns the concept i think that this absolutely 
embodies a lot of those same characters and characteristics. And I, to me, it almost feels intentional. King has always been fairly progressive as, as far as that goes and has often talked out about those sort of things. And this does feel like it feels like that there's something there that I can kind of like grab into and sink my teeth into. I could see that, but also having spent time in small towns, I could also see it just be like everyone's in bed by eight. Like no, nobody's out after sunset. Like, Oh no, that, that, that is also closed. real. I'm talking or about things also just like open. the, you're, you're totally correct in that assessment. I'm, I'm saying, and also the way that this shares the sort of, like the racial barrier barriers where like no one could get into this town because they would be forced out one way or another. Mm. And so okay. that's sort of the sharing point, not them like going to bed at a gotcha. specific time. Gotcha. You're totally right in like the early, the early clock in check in feels real, but Ben, even like Ben who lived there for a time, mm-hmm. nobody really remembers that, but he faces yeah. some sort of grinding pushback on his general existence there for a little bit his progressive ideology comparatively to mm-hmm. that's true too yeah and his, just his existence being there. an outsider like he's not right yeah even though he's not really an outsider right yeah that pj that is exactly where my kind of point here comes from is it's very much like a a host with white blood cells forcing out the parasite right and that is sort of the way that, like, sundown towns are in some shape, or were, were and are. There, there are a handful that remain, unfortunately. But yeah, it's so so interesting to get to maybe the characters a little bit, so that we can talk about our little uh, Van Helsing squad and sort of their their composition. I'm curious what you think of Ben Mears. What would you make of Ben? Ben is man there there's there is a very specific sort of vibe that I get off of him. He's brash, he's sure. young and like he, he's this young hotshot. When he first meets Susan, mm-hmm. I totally thought it was kind of a setup. Like he he knew that somebody would like I thought there was something more than just the happenstantial instance mm. of him seeing someone with his book. I, th- I thought he was a bigger deal than he is. And I, I thought he was like playing coy because that's the sort of energy that he exuded in the moment, I guess. He is... I, I do, I have to point this out. My brain can't let it go. He does choose to date like a super fan, basically. Like, yeah. not a super fan, but at the very least, like, <laughs> but that's a, a little, fan. I don't know. I've there, got, there's, I've got there's some feelings. There. There's something a little yeah. a little fishy about it. But do you, that's kind of like pre parasocial relationships. Well I mean, it's not like does wielding. that make sense? Does it, like, it does. It, it, sense it does make sense. From? Yeah. I, I do understand. It does feel like there was a little bit more, it, it, it feels a little coincidental in some ways but to me ben is the least interesting character of the whole lineup not that he's bad but he's just he's just not that 
He's not that compelling. He's got some issues. He's dating this college girl. He like makes well with the dad, but like doesn't try with the mom. And, you know, that's maybe a symptom of the times. But like, I don't know. Ben's fine. He's fine. But I wouldn't give him much more than fine. He's well written. Yeah. Yeah. Those are kind of my thoughts on Ben. I like him as like a member of the story and like the place that he takes. And he he's a great sort of blank canvas with which to have our Jonathan Starker hero from Dracula. Staker? Starker? Starker? Mm, Jonathan. Anyway. But <laughs> yeah, just ugh. I don't know. He's he's fine. I like everyone else a lot more than I like Ben. I don't dislike Ben. I'm, I'm yeah. I think he's fine. But you I, know, I like, think I'm. I think I'm with you. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I, Ben as a writer feels like so. This isn't an issue necessarily with with King and the Hole, but King does like writing writers. And as such, he's he's got a trend of writing writers because, you know, write what you know, and he literally writes writers. And Are at they the time, this is self inserts in any way. No, I don't. I don't okay. think so. Not often. I mean, the there are a handful of examples where it kind of is. Where it's sort of intentional. I mean, Lysi's story is entirely a self-insert. That's definitely intended to be him and Tabitha in sort of a conversation about like that sort of life and death and, and thoughts there. You've watched Lysi's story, so yeah. I, I'm not, you know, ruining anything there. But uh, yeah, the other one, there are Bag of Bones maybe, which is similar, but like the opposite of like if he died or if she died, what would he do kind of thing. So there are a handful of stories that are kind of mirroring that, but not always. He's not always intending it as a self-insert. Ben, to me, to me, King is split between two characters. He's split between Matt Burke and he's split between Ben Mears. Matt Mears more, is more kingy in my head because he's got more of that sort of everyman vibe to him versus Ben is a little bit more of the heroic thing. And King never paints himself as a hero as a part of his stories. If he self inserts one way or another. Okay. He's more like a wise and sage. If anything. Fair. <laughs> He'd rather paint himself as Gandalf, you know? Yeah. Who would? But, right. Yeah. I don't want to be Aragorn. Make me Gandalf. I want to live for quite some time and be reincarnated like a little godling that I am. I'm not a godling. I wish I was. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Matt's very cool. I really like Matt. I appreciated him, especially on a reread. I remember not liking him when I was younger and like just having this character being like, what the, f- who the fuck is the? Why would a teacher mean so much to like people? And now post, I'm like, Oh, no, I totally get it. I totally get, like, especially in a small town, that impact of where you know everyone. And yeah. that just, I don't know. There were thing. some quirks that didn't, like, some leads that didn't pay off. Sure. Especially right away with their meeting where Ben goes to meet with Susan and Matt says, it's fine. Anyway, I've got, I've got play practice to get to or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there was no play practice. It was just a lie. Mm. And that didn't because didn't pay off at all. Well, no, it I did. felt like it. 
it paid off. It paid off with him going to the bar because he has insomnia. Well, but he could have um, done that anyway. He didn't have to lie about having play practice. Ben was leaving because he regardless. didn't fully believe him. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't fully believe that Ben was like telling the truth. Okay. And so he didn't know how much to trust Ben with reality Fair. at the time. I think I think really to your point. That is more King. And and Matt as a character setting up later for when he actually like trusts him to some degree right being like showing him as a skeptical person because he is skeptical and he applies himself you know in stages and steps does that make sense it does make sense so the early story does such a good job setting up so much stuff i really appreciate the way that king kind of just pulls you in and you just start to gravitate towards these things and then there start to be like little tiny things that are just like hinting at something in the background and he's he's so good at lay, laying those like little things that are incorrect or wrong my my question here is more of a extra textual one again but you've seen midnight mass right mm mm-hmm. mhm did you not have you do now understand maybe the inspiration more directly? Totally, completely, one hundred percent. Yeah, and I'm excited uh, to watch it again with this in mind. Very clearly, in the same way that like Dracula inspired Salem's Lot, Midnight Mass is clearly an expansion or like a a take on Salem's Lot. Midnight Mass being a take on Salem's Lot, yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, extracting the small town making them remote giving all of these sort of extra extra things kind of layering in there i don't know it's it's so good it's part of the reason that i loved it in addition to flanagan embodying king's style so well overall that oh jeff's kiss but getting to it i would love to talk about more characters here what do you think about susan ah uh, too young too young for this man. <laughs> yeah, she's really Ben Mears is like thirty-two, right? I don't, I don't remember. I think he's thirty-two, if if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. And Susan's and out of high school, but not by that much. So this this is maybe the only thing that I think is incredibly confusing about this book to me, at the very least, is. It seems as though she's 18 in one of the lines as it's referenced, but that's not true. And it might have just been that it was when she was 18, she felt that way or something like that. I'm doing the math real quick. She's 24. So she because they do cite her as a college grad. And I was like, you can't have graduated college at 18. That makes no sense. Yeah. 24, eight years. What's the rule? Is it divided by two plus seven? Is that what it is? I don't remember. I I wouldn't have so pegged fits. her as 24. I, w- I would have like yeah. maybe put her at like 20. By technicality, she's 24. Okay. Um, Which is fine. But still, yeah. like it, 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 she doesn't present herself as that much. Like she, she presents herself as much less mature than Ben. Mm-hmm. But she's very sweet. Their relationship blossoms very 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 fast yeah i her relationship with her mother is relatable and strained and yeah well written 
especially for a town for sure for a small town like i don't know man said she became a vampire yeah it is it is sort of an unfortunate nature of the story and obviously this is a holdover (laughs) from interpreting dracula and it is one of the many it's one of the many sad beats of the story on the whole there are lots of them you know there aren't there aren't a lot of not sad beats (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the whole thing kind of ends in a victory that's also a defeat, right? Like, the the way that the story ends is not in... The Blaze of Glory is kind of kind of not really a win. Tough, tough to say. Exactly. Um, I do... Briefly, I want to mention the adaptations. Uh, there are two. Both are miniseries. Uh, one was done in 1979, so only a couple years after the release. Um of the of the book to begin with so four wow. years later adapted into a miniseries which just shows you like how hot out the gate king was um in terms of cultural fame and sort of you can you can see this leading into his eventual like cocaine addiction that he has later in life because he made way too much money too fast and was just trying to churn out books later in life i mean like in the 80s but ben mears in 2004 was played by rob Lowe. Wow. Yeah. That's really interesting. Can you can you imagine that? Can you imagine Rob Lowe being in the next adaptation as well? <laughs> he would play Matt Burke. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. No, so I, I did want to bring up the adaptations just a little bit. Have you seen either of them? No. Okay. I I have seen both of them at this point. The first, the original adaptation I actually saw when I was grounded when I was 15. I was allowed still to like access the first like 14 channels on TV or something. No cable, just like whatever basic was. I had no access to the Internet. I could read, which I did plenty of. But I I was still watching Heroes at the time. And after Heroes finished airing, they were re-airing the 1979 adaptation on one of the other channels that I had access to. So I'd watch Heroes, watch, I think, Glee maybe after that. And then I flipped into the Salem's Lot adaptation and it was the 1979 one and it was fucking horrifying. I was so scared. I had no access again to any of the internet to like assuage or like go read like what was going to, you know, happen because at this point, you know, I've forgotten some details and man, terrifying. However, the one mistake that that adaptation made versus the book is it turned Barlow into an unintelligent monster. Mm. So he was not sort of the conniving person. He was more like a beast and still scary, but just not not at all the same. And part of the fear of Barlow, especially in the end of this book, is... The way that he writes like that letter and the way that he shows up to the couple of characters that he directly converts where you're like, whoa, like, yeah, shit. I can understand how like, okay, I can see that being Mm -hmm. a way to like bolster what's his name's character, Straker, like Mm -hmm. making Straker be the like actual intelligent non-turned one. Like, kind of Jonathan Harker was who I was thinking of. Sorry. Anyway, no. Jonathan Harker is the name from Dracula. Sorry, Straker is the character you're talking about. But yeah, I can see 
a compelling story coming out of that, but I I like this one better. Midnight Mass, right? Like yeah. he's not that smart of a vampire. He's more like the the adaptation vampire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. It's it's not a horrifying departure, but it's not a good one either. No, yeah, I, I think it just undersells it. But that's that's just a point of Barlow's the adaptation, not right? That like a, present. Like he, no, he's, a looming, more he's a looming a sort of bit. force upon the entire mm-hmm. story, but but he's really not present until the very end. Not until like so he sneaks in a couple of times as like sounds and things like that that horrify people. There's mm-hmm. there are some like very well laid small notes throughout this book. When you fully understand the context, I really love this on a reread where you can see traces of him in places. For instance, when we actually get into the Marston house much later, the chimney grate has been removed. He can clearly turn into a bat or mist and make his way out via the chimney. And so that's how he leaves. There are no footprints. There's no trace of him because he goes up and out the other direction. In addition to being a vampire, not leaving a trace. But like there are just so many small things. There's when... This is a little bit later in the book. I think it's like chapter 14, that big long chapter. But when Eva Miller is converted and someone else is with her, one of the other patrons, Weasel maybe, they slip through the door jam. Like they don't need the key that's in her dresser drawer. They just slip through the door jam. That's so perfectly creepy and haunting in such an effectual way that it's like, Imagine that. Like, what does a physical person-sized entity moving through the space of a lock look like? You know? Yeah, <laughs> oh, it's good. So good. But yeah, there, there are a couple of those hints, basically, over the course of the story with Barlow. And the 1979 adaptation plays them up a little bit more. It gives him, as opposed to, like, classic vampire teeth that are, like, styled out on the, on the canine fangs, it gives him, like molted front yellow teeth that are like pointed and fanged so he's got like more of a a mouth that looks like floorboards that are broken to some degree which is horrifying and the image of his like yellow eyes are are terrifying but it's just it's different in a lot of respects yeah send a send a little picture here but yeah it's it's um still does still does good work But yeah, very much the traditional Nosferatu kind of. Yeah, more Nosferatu versus the 2004 adaptation, which is otherwise worse, does portray Barlow as Barlow, as you would more imagine him in the book, like a sophisticated gentleman walking around mm, okay. or like in dress more of that like vampire with with chest out and tie on. Yeah, I I like the first one. I agree with you. I prefer the first design. I just wish that he also was smart and not mush-mouthed. Yeah, so, fair. Because he doesn't even talk in the adaptation from 1979. He just makes noises like growling and hissing and whatnot. So he's mm. more like an animal. So, like, obviously there's intelligence to him because he does, like, you know, make people do the things, which is mysterious in its own right. But I digress. We're not here to talk about the adaptation. We're here to talk about the source material. So, yeah, I... Barlow is so effective. Straker is so effective. Yeah, love love them both as as characters. I imagine Straker 
to look exactly like the food critic from Ratatouille. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That is, that is hysterical. He looks more, so he's played in the, so 2004 one, to be fully clear, I have not fully seen. I watched a couple of episodes previously, but did not watch the whole thing. But uh, I was played by Donald Sutherland in 2004. So, you know, okay. fully white haired, bearded man. I can totally see that. In 1979 was played by Humbert Humbert, which is, oh no, sorry. That's a name. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, James Mason. I'm That's so sorry. Not, Humbert not Humbert cool. is from Lolita, okay. <laughs> which is a character. Yeah. I was like, wait a minute. That's not right. James Mason, of whom was an old school English actor. Um, okay. He he looks more like a, I don't know. Uh, I would describe him as like a James Bond at 75, you know, like kind of starting to like molt at the edges and dissolve a little bit okay. into age caretaker e which you know i think he fits well but Mm -hmm. yeah but not food critic from ratatouille (laughs) no yeah not quite not quite that (laughs) level he's he's older for sure for sure in the upcoming adaptation you'll be pleased to hear that the guy who played euron Greyjoy plays him interesting yeah okay which is more of a more of a sutherland take in my Mm -hmm. opinion yeah so I'm excited. That's going to be. Yeah, that's going to be fun. Yeah, well, we can we can talk more about that in a in a bit here. But yeah, Stryker Stryker's great. And I think like his presence in the story is reminiscent of Renfield and other turned servants in the realm of Dracula, which works well and effectively. And the whole like business angle that they have on entering the mm-hmm. town is great. How did you feel about the reveal in the end that Barlow was responsible responsible for Marston as well. I had an inkling of it from early on. Completely forgotten that detail and it blew my mind. There there's a couple there's a couple hints to it earlier on. And I can't I can't recall what exactly tipped me off, but um mm-hmm. yeah, I, I figured it was connected. Okay. So it didn't, it didn't yeah. surprise me. I had totally forgotten that it was connected. And it again belies this theme that we've been talking about with like the underground evil in the town. Which is just strongly present. And I'm so glad for it. Because this is literally the impactful moment that makes Ben Mears be the opposite force. The light versus the dark as it's repeatedly cited. You know, you're in. And he... It's, it's interesting... That Marston can't face it in the end. I think that's the thing that I find fascinating is he's been set up to set up this town for Barlow to come. And in the end, he kills himself, kills his wife, and loads a shotgun to shoot the first person who walks through the door. <laughs> like, it's just like, it's yeah. your death is better than, you know, living through what's to come. Man, it's it's pretty... It's pretty ridiculous, <laughs> just the horrors that that person went through. And I I wasn't totally clear on, on whether or not Marston killing himself was part of Barlow's plan or was a deviation from it. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's intended to be clear either, although his invasion coming, like Barlow showing up so much later, makes me feel like he waited for the natural forces to occur in the city and sort of the natural evils to take a stronger foothold as opposed to him coming earlier. So I, I think that that is intentionally unclear, um, you know, especially with someone that is considered so vaguely evil as Marston is. In his final moments, I don't know. I don't know how to read that either. Mm. But I, I, it's clear that he is a thrall at the very least. So a lot of his evil acts aren't committed by him himself. He is a demonic entity. So I, I tend to believe that he, he made his way out on his own or of his own accord. Makes sense. His, how does he refer to Marston, his associate? Something associate like that. Or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it, it, it's, it gave me shivers the way that he, he described him. He's just like my my like precursor, my like lead, my you know. It, it's so clear that like what Barlow does is go back and forth and like do this consistently. There is this like, there is this question I think that is kind of maybe begged by the text of like. Is Barlow actually Dracula? Like, is Barlow the real Dracula? And the whole story of Dracula was fiction based around Barlow escaping over the years. Like, that's also an interesting concept. It's totally plausible. Yeah. He's been known by many names. Known by many names. Okay, cool. So we've, we've talked a lot about, like, set up the story. I'd love to get into some of the specifics that I have. One of them you had actually brought up to me early on about the style. You texted me about it, and I think I had responded with something along the lines of "Good King is like butter." Like it just it, you it said just slides "Good King is like good butter," which doesn't make a lot of sense. But I knew what you meant. It was late. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I had to look it up. I had to look it up again in preparation for this episode like i wanted that locked and loaded of like what you actually said to me you said good king is like good butter Uh, i think i further i think i said more after that but you're probably that's that was my initial response to the question (laughs) but uh specifically we're talking about chapter 10 right well yeah because inadvertently i didn't know that you were talking about chapter 10 and then i also took a bunch of notes on chapter 10 and wanted to talk about it and you're like oh yeah it's chapter 10 that's what i meant (laughs) yeah so good such a good so what do you like, think of chapter meander 10? like i hadn't i've never read anything like this before in my life it mm-hmm. second person first of all is super rare mm-hmm. but this this cold meandering just retelling of what's happening within the city i don't know it, it's the mundanity of the town that's still pretty fucking horrifying like there's still really terrible things happening but there's also really mundane things happening it's it's beautiful it's verbose but it's bare at the same time like i don't i don't know how to properly describe it i don't get it it feels unique and it feels so good and flowy and not happy sad it's very sad it's not a good passage but he made me happy reading it somehow 
Yeah, it, it's it's so well done. It reminds me, you know, to like use analogy or metaphor, reminds me of those like Tim Burton flyby shots when he's like going through a town and you just see all these like different details, right? And I think that Tim Burton is the only director that I can think of that does that so well to give you like a picture into people's lives without making it the focus of the narrative. Like you go through Edward Scissor's hands and it shows you all these different people's houses and like their hedges and all these things. And then you land on that final house. So you're given this perspective that is for you as the the viewer, the consumer of, of this thing before you arrive in the narrative and you're put back into the POV gently for what's about to occur. It's it's so well done. I mean, I mean. Very clearly, Patreon bonus only, but with my looking back on it now after having read Salem's Lot again and like having not read a whole lot of King recently, having read so many other things, it's so clear that in that short story that we talked about, that first section that I cut was entirely intended to be something like this, to be like a second person perspective, to put you into the idea or the space of whatever it is. It doesn't fully land, but it's that's the idea of it, of course. It doesn't land at all, actually. That's why I cut it entirely. But like that is that is this concept. And to see it executed so well is just to be like, yeah, this is that's totally what I was aping. Like absolutely no question. Awesome. But yeah. He nails it. And chapter 10 in general is just so wonderful. I did take a little took it down as a little note here because we don't want to talk about it. The town knew about darkness. It knew about the darkness that comes on the land when rotation hides the land from the sun and about the darkness of the human soul. The town is an accumulation of three parts, which in some are greater than the section. The town is the people who live there, the buildings which they have erected to den or do business in, and it is the land. The people are Scotch, English, and French. There are others, of course, a smattering like a fistful of pepper thrown in a pot of salt, but not many. This melting pot never melted very much, which, again, reminds me of my son downtown, like analogy as well. Mm -hmm. And it just continues and it says you all the time. And it just brings you through this concept of all of these different vagaries and horrors that are actually just bubbling under the surface, like this, like the bruised child, like the cheating wife, like the abusive husband of whom is also with the cheating wife, like like the the uh, one that sticks in my head is the farmer who oh yeah is is harvesting and spent time clearing rocks but he still missed one and it fucked up one of the tines and his Mm -hmm. oldest son is holding it and loses strength halfway through and like Mm -hmm. it's so real (laughs) and i don't have experience in that but i know exactly how fucking frustrating that experience is immediately yeah it's so right. good there's it's so good there's so there's so much that's casually dropped it and one of the things that I, i'm also interested on your thoughts are is also within this little section king writing and talking about this town says the town has its secrets and keeps them well the people don't know them all they know old albie crane's wife ran off with a traveling man from new york city or they think they know it but Albie cracked her skull open after traveling after the traveling man had left her cold and then he tied a block on her feet and tumbled her down the old well. And 20 years later, Albie died peacefully in his bed of a heart attack, just as his son Joe will later in this story. And perhaps someday a kid will stumble on the old well where it is hidden by a chalked 
blackberry creepers and pull back the whitened weather smothered boards and see that crumbling skeleton staring blankly up from the bottom of that rock blind pit the sweet traveling man's necklace still dangling green and mossy over her rib cage hmm. yeah there's something wrong with this person that wrote this book <laughs> yeah I, 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 okay i i was just i continue to read and like i'm getting sucked in and i'm not gonna read any more than this out of this little chunk chunk but they know just because we were just talking about it they know that hubie marston killed his wife but they don't know what made her what he made her do first or how it was with them in that sun sticky kitchen in the moments before he blew her head in with the smell of honeysuckle hanging in the hot air like the gagging sweetness of an uncovered charnel pit. They don't know that she begged him to do it. And that's what makes me think. Yeah. That's like a great example of what makes me think that like they they could not escape that evil. And so they they offed themselves because yeah. they couldn't find another way out. Now, why the shotgun at the door is just a great curiosity. <laughs> like that's maybe to kill him when he came in or striker maybe but maybe i don't know man yeah so good though so fucked so good yeah there's so much too this is this is kind of a core theme of a lot of king's writing i i should say later books maybe and, and carrie i think too to some degree and not all of them but one of the core themes of king's writing is sort of the loss of innocence and this idea is personified immediately in like given manifest through Mark. There are a lot of like different chapters with Mark that end in in very strong ways. Chapter 12, there's this little line that I really appreciated that was somewhere around the lines of child who counts the cost is a child no longer. And this idea of like beginning to tally those things in your head, you you the fact that you're counting and that you're paying attention to these things and soaking in details means that you've lost whatever made you a kid and that's that's just tough like king is so good at writing children like that is one of his specialties and mark is such a believable character in that way as are the the glick boys the glick boys man yeah fuck yeah Mm. he's also really good at writing grieving parents oh yeah incredibly good at writing grief i think in general i mean there's there is just something to that what what struck you in particular just the glicks the glicks with the funerals yeah 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 that whole scene just stands out Mm -hmm. as particularly brutal the one that got me in this reread this was another moment that just like it hit me in the forehead and I could not stop thinking about it in a way that few books make you stop and think about a couple of lines. So begins with before drifting away entirely, he found himself reflecting not for the first time on the peculiarity of adults. They took laxatives, liquor or sleeping pills to drive away their terrors so that sleep would come and their terrors were so tame and domestic. The job, the money, what the teacher will think if I can't get Jenny nicer clothes. Does my wife still love me? Who are my friends? They were pallid compared to the fears every child lies cheek and jowl with in his dark bed with no one to confess to in hope of perfect understanding but another child. There's no group therapy or psychiatry or community social services for the child who must cope with the thing under the bed or in the cellar every night. The thing which leers and capers and threatens just beyond the point where vision will reach. The same lonely battle must be fought night after night, and the only cure is the eventual ossification of the imaginary faculties, and this is called adulthood. 
Yeah. My God, that turn at the end to just be like the only way that fear dies is if your imagination dies. And that is just a nature of existing is like. Ugh. It is a it is a gasp of reality that is so hard to like try to recapture imagination because you just you become a realist at a certain point and this stuff that is tough it's impossible Eep. there are lots and lots of very very good lines within this book another one uh it's short it's small and i don't remember the specific verbiage or what it's towards the end it's in chapter 14 i think but the imagery of shocking the world back into you by like splashing water on your face i've never heard it described that way it it's very short and very unique but generated very great imagery for me when i read that is that when they're going and splashing themselves with holy water? Yeah. <clears throat> there's a great under, there's like a great undertext there as well with that whole section, basically saying like this treatment of myself and splashing is also like a holy sanctification. Like it is awakening and it's a shock to like come back to. But I think on the other side of that, it's also like there's something extra about what's happening here that is a little bit beyond the pale of what I understand because they've been in the evil world. And so dowsing them with this sort of holy remedy that will solve their problems. You know, it's, it's just that like little extra. There's a lot in 14 that's great, too. I mean, all the stuff with Father Callahan and the cross actually glowing with his like the power of his faith with like when they go to the, the house and he kind of sanctifies it with a prayer and he touches the doorknob and like everything shatters the the glass. I think the line is coughed its glass onto the grass is just like such a especially in that like intense moment. <laughs> it's so perfectly descriptive of like a house being attacked in this like sanctification. I don't know. I loved it. Love that in particular. Mm -hmm. God, Callahan. Let's talk about Callahan. Yeah. Piece of shit, but also really useful. <laughs> yeah. He's, <clears throat> it, it's tough to like strictly call him a piece of shit. I think that Callahan is skeptical, right? And so his whole nature is skeptical. Yeah. And he, flees though for a man of faith you know what i mean well he he can't help but flee yeah. fair to some degree but he i can forgive most of his like character flaws it's it's the leaving without notice that kind of really yeah, twists I, him for me what's interesting is as a note king always wanted to write a sequel to this book he he Stans is saying that it is one of the few books in his avoir, his, you know, opus that he is oeuvre, not avoir, that like he bibliography, whatever, wanted to write a sequel to at one point. He has not and has stated since that he doesn't because he likes kind of where it ended and thinks that he's taken things in proper ways that address other characters. But yeah, Father Callahan is to me 
one of the like two bigger loose threads that like still require a little bit of resolving mm. in this story. I feel like the town itself deserves a little bit of a resolve from this. And as such, that's Ben Mears and Mark as well. But, you know, right. I, I can totally see settling into being OK with that in the long run. But the crisis of faith that Father Callahan experiences as he is this skeptical person despite being a man of the cloth, which is supposed to be so solid and like stolid in your faith is so great. It's so brilliant. It's so well-written to see that like literally crumble when confronted to see him, like to see Barlow be like, you were supposed to be my great enemy. I was actually excited to fight you because you seemed like the one who could actually put up a fight that would be like worth it. What <laughs> from Barlow a, but also from Callahan, like to just dissolve mm-hmm. as a skeptic. Oh, such an interesting interrogation, especially from King. Yeah. This early too in King's career. Yeah. Other thoughts on Callahan. I was very confused right away when introduced with Callahan mm-hmm. because I misremembered the name of the priest in the prologue. And thought it was Callahan. Oh, Munoz, Munes, something like that. Munoz, Munes, Munoz. Yeah, whatever, whatever it was. I I had in my head that it was Callahan. I'm like, oh, this is that priest from the. Nope, nope. But it is the boy and child, or the boy and man. Yeah. Interestingly enough, we did get a couple of notes in. This is not the only time that this has happened. I got some in Instagram when we announced that we were going to do this in October and Twitter back before it was fully X. But people mentioning that, like, the prologue was confusing. Did you find the prologue confusing? Did you have an understanding that it was post? Oh, I totally knew it was post. Yeah, I wasn't. I don't I don't think I was confused by it. I knew I knew I didn't like know who all the people were. Yeah. And I knew that was like intentional, but like I, I didn't have any questions on where it was chronologically, I guess. Got it. T- to me, that's one of the central things that I think works so well about the story is that it starts where it does, where it sets up a mystery that you then are like coming to understand is like, whoa, this town is abandoned. It's on the the name of the town is on the fucking book. This is a story about the town. Like, that's my understanding. And then you start to unravel it and you're like, oh, my God. And then you begin to question, Okay, well, what boy and man survive here? (laughs) Who makes it out to be that like, you know, the prologue characters? And yeah. It's a great moment. One of the things that I think that King excels at is letter writing. Um, And in any moment in which he can write a letter from a character to another character, it is generally speaking brilliant. It's one of the things that I miss most about some of the modern stories is that he can't play as much in that territory because modern communication has in some way de-romanticized the entire idea um, and as such ruined it. But it's so good to read. And the letter that Barlow leaves to the group is... One of those few things that made my heart pump in this story, right? Like that is, yeah. he's calling them each out individually, mm-hmm. which is so good. That is. That, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I remember reading that for the first time. That was nuts. Yeah, that was, 
That was definitely something. Yeah, there's there's the letter. Dear my dear young friends, and the way that the narrator puts the accent on it to make him effectively like cliche Eastern European is is lovely mm-hmm. in its execution. And it just works so well. How lovely of you to have stopped by. <laughs> it's just like this like perfect. It's like he knows exactly what they're gonna do. They're predictable. I, I have left you a small token of my appreciation, you know, Mr. Mears. Uh, she is lovely, Mr. Mears, very toothsome as he taunts her about Susan literally being in the basement, the fact that he's gonna have to kill her, preempting that little detail. Um Yeah. yeah. Ugh. Um weirdly weirdly evoked noho hank kind of i get that i get that from barry yeah 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 he, he does kind of have a no you know what actually yeah totally the fun fact what's his name primary writer literally barry hater yeah, bill, bill hater, hater is a massive stephen king fan absolutely ridiculously massive Stephen King fan, which is why he was so psyched to be in it part two to play a big part in that modern adaptation. Mm-hmm. But he adores King. I believe it. And uh, yeah, his episode on the, the King cast is one of the best that they ever put out. No question, but yeah. Oh, so good. They, they did talk about some of the, like writing of Barry and like how he took things not explicitly from King, but like just borrowed sort of like ideas of like towns and like the way that people behave and like just so much of that sort of analysis of, of the individual is like in Barry as he Mm -hmm. puts it. So very interesting. That letter plays so well. (laughs) Oh, one of the things that I'm curious about your thoughts on on King and something that he does pretty often is he telegraphs things. He says that, like, you know, the, this boy and this man survive until the end of the story. He says that, like, there are some things where he very clearly lays out something is going to be happening or will happen inside of the story from this third person perspective. And he tees you up with sort of an understanding how did you feel about that? It's very different than anyone that we've read to have this sort of omniscient narrator also exist within these limited perspectives. Yeah. As we're it, walking through something. It reminded me of something. It reminded me of a movie, an old mm-hmm. movie that I like that I've seen, and I don't know which one. So it's not helpful. I'd point to Tim Burton again, because I think that like Nightmare Before Christmas does this a couple yeah, of times. It has like similar that. things. It, yeah. It feels live action, though, in what sure. I'm thinking of. And I, I don't remember what, but just the idea of knowing that the narrator is telling a story that has already been told and has already happened. So there's there's a little bit of a hint of what's going to happen. But. Okay, I I totally understand what you're saying. Yes. That's more of like a first-person retelling, though. This is a third person, which is not a person telling us the story. This is like God's perspective. I thought you were talking about what you, the the passage you read from from chapter 10 in second person. That's an example. Yeah, that's in the second person. But there are a number that are there. Yeah, there are more. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I don't know. There are a couple of like those that yeah. are like 
prognosticating what's about to happen. You're like, <gasps> what? How did that? And then you like continue yeah. to turn your page, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, it didn't feel like spoiling anything. Like it didn't feel like it spoiled anything. It, it felt right for the, the pacing of the, of the story and of the like drama, I guess. Like I, I never felt like I was cheated by that. Uh, That's important. Yeah. That reveal or that omniscient sort of view. I, I think it works great because it kind of like sets your expectation for what's to come. Like it, it, it is more of like a, you know, in like a micro way, it's a trailer, right. Of like what's to happen. And so like you're, you're aware of it. And so you're like looking for the details of like frantically sometimes of like, what's the next thing. This can also work in like a first person perspective, retelling perspective, like you were saying totally, but this being a third person, it, it's a little bit different. Yeah, I'm just curious. People have very different reactions to that sort of thing of like, you know, the sort of prognostication of like the end yeah. of a line or like of the I next thing see, that's going to happen. I could see it being problematic or, or I, I could see it being abrasive, I guess. Mm -hmm. But uh, the way that it was done in the story didn't bother me. Cool. Yeah. Dig that. Uh, uh, yeah. It is just as an example of this. This happens late in the story, but this is when uh, Ben is killing Susan, putting putting her to death. This is one example of such a thing where he just gives us this like who, what, when like lineup and Ben kills her and says that he doesn't remember who hands him the hammer years later, which implies in that moment or like gives us this idea like ben makes it out of this like we know in that moment that like ben mm -hmm. is alive later you know and that's just an example of that like prognostication to some degree i think pretty early on ben is described as a tall man correct yes yeah so mm -hmm. like that that to me it is like six four or six three yeah but i mean specifically yeah. like it's it's a child and a tall man in the prologue mm-hmm so like I, I figured it was Ben almost right away because of his physical description. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, you are definitely correct in my opinion. Like it's, it's definitely, it, it's pretty easy to pick up that he's the tall man as repeated. The question I think lingering as you're going through the story is which kid is going to make it yeah. of the, of the Glick boys and of Mark of all the kids on the bus on Charlie Rhodes's bus, you know, there's like this sort of sort of larger question of like, will they all make it out or who's going to make it out? So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And uh, like, I, that, that was a question to the end. I really didn't know if. I think when the Glick boys die, you know that it's neither of them, well, but yeah, I mean, or rather when they're vampires, they show up. I didn't know for sure Charlie. that it was Mark. Like I, I thought I, I thought mm, okay. there was a possibility that it was somebody other than Mark up until basically the end. Got it. Because Got it. like that could have easily been the like dark horse sort of deal from the prologue. Yeah. He just rescues a random boy and takes him yeah. out. And so you think it's Mark and then you're left with, yeah. you know, random kid he saved, which could also be a good thing. I mean, yeah, we've talked to some degree about the the variety of bad people 
um, in the town. We talked about the awful abusive mother of whom gets her and her just desserts, especially in the way that she dies. Um, tough. I, that that section in particular hits hits particularly hard. We've talked about like the difficulties of uh, Susan's mother. We've talked about a, a number of different things, but one kind of like subplot in this that we've not hit at all is Bonnie and Reggie and Corey Bryant. And I kind of, I want to take a moment to just talk about them as like a whole, because this is a very interesting picture of the seventies in some way. I think this is like post mad men era. Like women are beginning to have a little bit more in terms of like, rights as far as like going to work and like working for themselves and other things like that king is for the record was only raised by his mother he was raised by a single mother of whom worked in a variety of jobs but one of the most notable being like she turned large quantities of clothes and like did like large industrial washing clothes so like very interesting to have this this perspective on bonnie and reggie's relationship with Bryant, what would you think about this whole thing? Did you pay attention to it? I it, it caught me off guard in this read. I genuinely don't. It didn't. It didn't hook me. I don't. I don't remember. Wow. I I was so intrigued by what he was going for here. Um. So Bonnie is sleeping with Corey over the course of the story a couple of times. Every time yeah. that Reggie goes out of town. Reggie being a successful business person has partnered with Larry on a couple of things. Larry being the one of whom sold the house to the Marston house and is just kind of like a general businessman, you know, as far as the plot goes. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I guess I, I didn't, I didn't extrapolate it beyond the immediate story. Sure. I just find it interesting as sort of like a, a commentary on the time and also the sort of just, I don't know, the like cheating dynamic of that whole thing. The moment in which, again, another moment in which my heart got thumping because I didn't remember shit about this plot line from when I read it when I was younger. This idea of him being caught. Reggie being there with the gun, with the shotgun, basically putting it in his mouth, clicking the empty barrels. Mm hmm. And then it's him fucked. running away at that point. It's then so Barlow up. just talks to him. Like, and that's like to me, I think, if I'm recalling correctly, that is like the first one of the first big reveals of I think Barlow. It's the, the first. I think that technically Barlow is in an earlier scene, but this is the first time that he's really fully addressed, and it's very clear that it's him. Like this is the first time that it is very clearly Barlow, his accent. He has the most conversation that he has up until this point. There are a couple of sentences otherwise that that make you guess on it being Straker or Barlow, but it's clearly Barlow before this. Okay, but this is the first time that it is clearly Barlow and with Corey. And that's that's why I like this, I think, and I gravitate towards it so much is is like his being turned and also turning around and realizing his desire as he's pushed back into the city is just so smart. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of the sort of enchantment that these vampires have in the sort of classical vampire ways. Well done. Very well done. Yeah. Obviously there is tragedy inside of this whole story of like Bonnie is definitely trying to escape this relationship on the whole. 
there are there is some terminology that it's thrown around, of course, regarding in particular, I think it's from Callahan's perspective where he's talking about the opposite of a conscious decision being rape of a sort. And I don't think that that's wrong. It's just the incorrect word to use for coercion. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but obviously in Bonnie and Reggie's case, immediately it is rape as it's specified inside the story for the two of them at that point. So I just a, a really tough and hard look, I think at like bad domestic life in the seventies too. Yeah. And Stephen King's kind of staring down. Yeah, that's fair. I don't I don't have a barometer for it, but it, no, it felt right. real. Right. It feels very real. And the shotgun thing and the there's like mention of bruises and then they both become vampires. And I don't know. I really want Reggie to just get gutted personally. Not that Bonnie like not that cheating isn't wrong, but like this isn't the right response to it by any stretch. Right. So, yeah. When Corey shows up, I'm I'm kind of okay with it. He shoots the shotgun. There's that whole scene. He kind of falters before he shoots him in like a, hey, I don't want to shoot you way where he's like, he's Reggie was a did go to Nam for like eight months. And so it was very used to sort of war conditions, but still didn't want to kill a guy, which is interesting too. It's not that, I mean, I don't think it's that interesting. I think that's pretty pretty <laughs> normal human behavior. <laughs> it it is it is very normal human behavior, which is why it's good and compelling on the page. Because I think a lot of other people would have had the guy pull the trigger because he went to Nam, right? Right? Like it is yeah. it's more humanizing for a character that is otherwise, in my opinion, very easy to demonize as you should. But there's still that sort of base or human instinct of like I don't want to kill a man there yet. Mm-hmm something fragile there's a fragile balance there that's broken or like interrogated i don't know this is why i chose for the record just let the grand record show for that one fucking senior paper that or junior paper that i will never ever let live down in my own memory i said stephen king was the greatest author greatest american author at the time and i was like i would love to write a great american author paper about stephen king because i don't think he gets the respect that he deserves this is one such example that I wish I would have cited in that paper, but like dude fucking gets it in the same way that in a similar way that Steinbeck gets it. It's just Steinbeck's generally less immediately violent and you know that that's why Steinbeck gets respected, but King doesn't because he has horror conceits around his stories. He'll get it. It's bullshit. Oh yeah, he will post postmortem. King will go down as a Twain esque author. Um, I think he in a, in a very different gets a lot more credit now than you're giving him credit for. No, it's very true. It was just it's more of like a from the corpus of proper English, you know, English literature, right? Like King is pulp and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is. But the core of his pulp is very real and like very centered. And there are a few authors, in my opinion, or in my estimation, that are as well researched, especially from the time frame and as well educated. I mean, due to the masters in English and taught in high schools, he published this was his second book that he published while he was teaching high school English, which is, you know. Just 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 a working dude. Mm-hmm. But, okay. 
All right. I wanted to talk about just a couple more points on this whole episode. One being sort of the very end here. As we get into, I think, chapter 14, there's a line that reads, In the lot, the dark held hard. And there are just so many great casual lines that are along that that sort of track that are really wonderful in the end. How do you think about the end of the story? What was what were your feelings on the way that this all concluded? Man, it's it's somewhere in between begging for a sequel and being fully wrapped up Mm -hmm. like it's not quite either of them and i don't know how to describe that it's a little open-ended i'd like a little bit more conclusion but at the same time i i i'm into the idea of this like yeah it doesn't it doesn't just end here it it'll need to be addressed later and yeah i don't know I'm not quite convinced that it's a good ending to this book, but I, I'm not hmm. quite convinced that it needs another book either. Interesting. Okay. The The one thing I'll say, by and large, is that King, uh, this is almost a meme, is that King is often criticized for endings, um, in part because he does such a good job of pulling you in gradually and just like, he's he is treating you like a steak being basted with butter. Like he's just continually throwing, this is another butter metaphor, I guess with Stephen King for some fucking reason, but he's, you're being like continually basted with the butter and you like, you're, you're not ready to be done. And then you're served with the steak and then you're like, okay, well this was a little medium rare or this one, this one was perfect or this one was medium rare and it's perfect. This one was a little well done. Didn't work out. Like he isn't watching the like proper cook, but he is basting properly with the butter. And each story ends in in kind of different ways. I think that this one ends fine. I think it ends great, actually. I would say it doesn't end fine in a way that feels like it resolves the story well enough to give you the idea of what happens, right? Like he shows Mm -hmm. up, he burns down the buildings, the fire rages for three days, and you're left with this conclusion of, you know, they were exposed to the sun and died. Okay. Probably. You know, it's left to your imagination, but that seems to be the end. Kind of. But they're like, they're still vampires wandering Salem's lot. No, not if they're exposed to the sun. I mean, they were for a while. And the papers show that they got close to some of the other cities, but never got there fully. Right. Like they never got mm-hmm. in because people were aware and protecting themselves. <laughs> That's fair. OK, maybe I have to read it again. I mean, do it just for fun. <laughs> I will. I think I will. Uh, it's a. It is definitely a great story that rewards that. Um, you brought up before we started that there are two short stories that are connected to this, uh, and I would say, for argument's sake, that they are loosely connected. One is more directly connected, and one is very loose. The one that is loosely connected is called Jerusalem's Lot. Both of these short stories are published, I think, in Night Shift. I believe so. Yeah, which I, th- I have. This is before my we started recording. So I, I was yeah. taking, I was copy and pasting the <laughs> the summary. And I ended up with the the flap summary from the book itself. But I, the first one that I grabbed was the Wikipedia 
summary. And that mentions the other short mm. stories that reference Salem's Lot. So that's so, where that came from. You should definitely read them. I'd be curious on your thoughts. One for the Road basically is a is a story about that's more of a sequel and that is a story that is post the story here of course as a sequel would be but it, it's about one of the other small towns nearby and like a single character's perspective on what happens there um jerusalem's lot the other story is a deeper prequel that i think if i remember correctly happens in like the 18 or 1700s hmm. in the area and so is more I would say like Lovecraftian in horror where there is something else evil under the city that gives this that gives it the sort of like preternatural this sort of like preternatural ability for like these events to occur. Like it's it's a frequent thing in the city because it's it's already been exposed. And so it's more likely for these things to have happened here, if that makes sense. Like it's weak to it. Okay. If that makes sense. It does. It it's it's a little. I mean, I'm I'm being loose because I don't want to spoil the story, but it's it's a little bit more. It's a little bit different. Yeah, 1700s. I just double checked, but there's a wonderful. I oh god, I hope that they're still doing more at this point. But there is a series that was released on epics called Chapel Wait, which is this short story expanded into a larger story and pj i generally think that that is a terrible idea this is the best version of that idea that i've ever seen it is generally i think underappreciated but well reviewed among people who have seen it it is so good okay we should watch that it's it is yeah it's it is jerusalem's lot not salem's lot okay so Good to know. Shuffle wait, but or shuffle what? Okay. I did want to end this episode talking about the 2023, 2024 adaptation. Maybe do you have anything else that you want to say about the book? Oh man. It, it has that we totally, missed. totally opened my eyes to Stephen King and I am absolutely going to be reading more of them. And by, yeah. by that, because of that, you're going to hear more one-off, quote-unquote, short pours of Stephen King novels randomly when I They're decide to read them. Yeah. So you're welcome or I'm sorry, listeners, depending on your feelings of Stephen King. I'm excited to to have that as sort of like an open topic that we can talk about. There are certain things that I would like to be informed of ahead of time. Like if you choose the stand, we're not going to try to cover that in a single fucking episode. We'll turn that into a little mini series. You're going to know um, every step like, of my decision process of what I'm going yeah, to read. Yeah, yeah. Like um, I'm going to ask you for recommendations of what I read right, next. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, you totally are my Stephen it. King totally resource. Yeah. Get that. Probably that. <laughs> From the book perspective, I just thought of something that we, we talked a little bit about off air over the course of time. Parkins, the Parkins, officer. Fucking Parkins. We, we, we almost missed him. We almost missed him. We got to get him in right at the end. Parkins is a shithead. Parkins is like shithead. he is a perfect counterpoint to Father Callahan, but a coward, like a true coward. A lack of faith, a skepticism. Skepticism is very different 
than it, Parkins. It feels even more specific than that, though, yeah. because it's it's apathy. Oh yeah, good point. Because mm-hmm. he understands it's not rejection; it's apathy, and, and he yeah. he knows what's happening, and he suspects what's his, happening. His coworker will make a great vampire, which yeah. just makes Give, <laughs> so given some given some time. Yeah, yeah. like fuck, Ugh. man. It like it, it. It's there's a point where I mean, it's chapter fourteen. Mm-hmm. For most of the book, he feels 15. just kind of I think it's small town. Not quite inept, but like kind of a like trickable constable. And then he's signed, he he likes Ben's book, asks for a signed copy for his dead wife of whom is not alive, but it's actually yeah. for him because he wants one. Yeah. He's a tricky dude. Yeah, he's a tricky dude. Like the, he's he's certainly a an interesting character, and I'd like to really pay attention to him more in my second read through but like my my impression of him was kind of trickable and and almost inept up until mm-hmm. chapter 14 where it's just apathetic and it's like oh this he doesn't actually care about anything and he's not trying and what's going on here <laughs> you know yeah. out of, out of, apathy i think is is my best word to describe him i think apathy is good i think it does a good job of kind of giving color to what's going on with parkins because he does seem like he is kind of quasi involved in investigating these things and then once it hits a certain mass he's like this is bullshit and like this is past the point of like me being able to do anything about it and so writes the whole thing off to me Father Callahan embodies like a questionable theist's point of view. Parkins embodies like an atheist point of view on the whole thing of I'm just going to like completely fuck off from this in terms of and I don't mean this in sort of the like larger God context, but like in a sort of believer in this story, the context of reality that they're confronted with. Right. Okay. Callahan is trying to be a realist and trying to confront it from a very real direction. He's a skeptic. And as such, is also skeptical on the impact of his faith. Meanwhile, Parkins is sort of the inverse where he is like, this is so immediately believable and I can do nothing about it that I am apathetic to the cause. And so I run away from it Mm. from like a light versus dark perspective. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Fucking Parkins. Fuck Parkins. Yeah. Father Callahan has his problems, but fuck, fuck Parkins. All right. I want to close this out with just a little bit about this 2023-2024 adaptation. So, obviously, you've seen none of the adaptations up until this point. And a lot of what we're about to talk about is strictly speculation. But I wanted to, at the very least, broach this and kind of get your thoughts on it. In, I believe, 2021 or 2022, they started to do an adaptation of the story again for the you know third time in history. And... It has since been completed entirely, like fully casted, completed, filmed, I believe was done at some point in late 2022 and has not been released. It's just sitting Hmm. in a state purgatory purgatory 
in part because of Warner Brothers, of whom is the producer of the uh, inserted some of the changeovers that happened therein, but like has a wonderful cast. We talked a little bit earlier about the casting of P. Lou, of whom is Theon Greyjoy as Straker. Lewis Pullman plays Ben Mears. He was a guy, he, he's been in a number of different like war films that you definitely recognize him from. He was in Top Gun, the new Top Gun. There, there are a number of people that are wonderful over the course of the cast, but you know, it's just not out yet. And I think that that's in part the fault of timing. I think it's mostly timing. I'm hoping for this movie to be released this year. I think that a combination of like needing more time in edit, not being confident in theatrical releases, which Warner Brothers has not been over the course of the last year, has led them to not release it. I don't think that this is one of those that is going to be shelved permanently a la uh, Batgirl. They've they've since announced that it's not. It's just not currently on a release slate. This has so it's to be I'm an curious. October release, right? Like it it's, has it's to be. Got to be a Halloween movie. You miss the window, and you can't not like you have to put it out in the window. Yeah. So I, I'd I'd like to think that it'll come out this October. Yeah, I think so too. It's written by the guy who wrote it and it part two. Guy who wrote the Annabelle movies, of which are notable horror movies that I've not seen, but people like. But also, he also directed this. So I'm I'm very curious. I'm very excited. I think that it will be well done. Did you see either of the two? Have you ever seen it? I have. I'm very interested in sort of like almost the backstory of this at this point, just to kind of like hear what happened. But I don't know. I think it's going to be great. I'm so like, I'm so excited for this movie to come out, but it has to be an October release. Mm-hmm. And I think that there were a number of other competing October releases, which is why it didn't happen. But this is EJ. I know that our company's name is is just a thing that we like came up with. But I'm not going to lie and say that I didn't stare at the Atomic Monster logo of James Wan's and think up Atomic Pylon in part because of <laughs> the Atomic Monster logo and how much I liked it. Definitely influenced. Fair <laughs> enough. Thoughts. Okay. So, I didn't know about you know, that. Yeah, it was it was a small thing. I believe Atomic Monster also produced or was involved in. I know that they. It's James Wan, of whom is a horror director, who also did like Aquaman and other things. But I swear to God, they were involved in Overlord, and I think that's what stuck with me in the back of my head because I fucking love Overlord. So, anyway, okay. I was just curious on your thoughts. Cool. All right. Well. I'm glad you had such a great time reading Salem's Lot, enjoying the story, and kind of getting to getting to plumb to the depths with you on our first Stephen King novel. It's been a fun time. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Many more to come. Many more to come. Is it probably all more you organized? imagined? I, you know, <sighs> yes, and. I, I've got more like meta complaints about like not taking enough notes on this one in part because of consumption schedule for myself. But on the whole, no, I, I think I've got no complaints. I was very excited. I'm glad that you loved it. I'm glad that this got to be the first book. It's uh, it is, in my opinion, the first time that King is King in his way. You know, like this is indicative mm-hmm. of his style. Carrie is indicative of some of his style for sure. But this is more in line with 
a lot of his storytelling and sort of his techniques and like what he does. So yeah. Fair enough. I'm excited about that component, that perspective. So yeah, with that, thank you so much for listening to our show. Be sure to check out our social media. We've got a lot of, a lot of stuff coming out on the atomic pylon media network, including books and baddies very soon. Mm hmm. A um, couple weeks. A couple weeks. They are amazing. They're great. I, I've been editing some of the episodes today. I'm really, really, really looking forward to everybody seeing those. So keep your ears tuned for more. Yeah. Other than that, this episode is recorded in a little bit of a limbo. <laughs> so either here's what's going to happen. There are two possibilities. Next week's episode is either our episode with Zeph talking about Athena's trial and a lot of other components that go into some of the greater dramatic moments of the different parts that aren't the primary escalation points of the story of Lightbringer or hear me out the blade itself in which we will be covering first pause for dramatic effects the first 104 pages which equates to for anyone not at home looking at our website the end which is the first chapter through the good man which is as pj mentioned like 104 pages so those are the two options that are going on with this so very excited hope that you enjoy our episode here talking about salem's lot we will not spend too much time away from king but i think our next planned break um, that we have at the moment or planned short for is a Neil Gaiman book um, by the name of, I think, American Gods. So hmm. that's what we're talking God. about. That's a weird name. It's it's another it's it, PJ. This book <laughs> it doesn't approach my top 25 books. American Gods is is like number 12. And I am hmm. so excited. Good. Yeah. 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 All right. Cool. All With right. that, we will talk to you next week. Leave us a five-star review or else we will leave you like a dog on a post outside of a cemetery. Concise. All right. Cool. <laughs> 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 <laughs>